This is episode 256 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, The Mean Reds with Dale Bridges. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am very pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. Dale Bridges is with us. Welcome, Dale. Thank you. And I'm going to introduce him from the bio in the back of his first novel, which is called The Mean Reds. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. He's a writer and painter living in Austin with his wife, two cats, a tarantula, a corn snake, and far too many old movies. Uh, which is a little bit of a preview of some of the things we're going to see in this book. His short story collection, Justice Inc., was published in 2014, and this is his first novel. So this book actually comes with all kinds of interesting blurbs on the back and on the inside cover. People have really enjoyed reading this book, as did I. But I did want to read one review, I guess you call them, from Amazon, which I'm always interested to see what the amateur reviewers have to say. And this one I particularly liked. Uh, This guy said, this comedic mystery is written in a clever, cynical voice that kept me laughing through the plot's twists and turns. But behind all the witty dialogue, weed humor, and classic film references is an unexpectedly moving character study of a guy too dumb and stoned to realize that he's not the Bogart-esque hero he imagines himself to be and that there are consequences to ignoring reality in favor of Hollywood fantasy. I really enjoyed that review. I thought that was uh, a nice portrayal of the book. Yeah, they really nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, and it was nice, too, that he just wrote in his own voice, because I think so many of us, when we want to talk about this particular book, just feel as though we're obliged to write in kind of a, you know, noir-esque or Sam Spade, you know, kind (laughs) of way. And he, you know, he avoided that trap, which, which I thought was pretty cool. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that character's revelation, which I do think is a really profound part of this book. One of the things that I really liked about this book was the first line, uh, which is, uh, so actually each of the chapters is also the name of a movie, very clever. And the first line of chapter one, which is titled The Long Goodbye, the first line is, this all started because my editor wanted me to write a story about a dead stripper. And I really like that line. It's got so many pieces. It's such a short, you know, easy line, but it's got, it already uh, signals the reader about some of the things that are going to show up in the book. So, yeah, uh, congratulations on the great line. Thank you. And also, Good title and also good book. There were just uh, lots of things that were really great about this. 
Thank you so much. Uh, so first, tell me about the title, The Mean Reds. How did you come up with that? Absolutely. So um, The Mean Reds is pulled from a line in the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of great uh, because you can see sometimes, I think the, the movie buffs are the ones who are, I think a lot of people are connecting with the book, but the movie buffs are just sort of getting uh, kind of giddy about it, which is fun. And they, they, they're the ones who usually know where that comes from. But yeah, in, um, in the movie, the protagonist is, uh, well, Holly Golightly is, is it explaining how that she gets depressed, basically, but she doesn't call it depression. And the uh, protagonist says, oh, so you, 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 know, you get the blues. And she's like, no, these aren't the blues. These are the mean reds, mm -hmm. uh, which as a person who's you know, struggled with depression and mental health issues my life too, I, thought, I always thought that was a, a great line. And that movie is kind of seminal in the book. And it just sort of wrapped up a lot of, I think it's, it's sort of the heart of the book is kind of in those words. So, Yeah. And I think in the book, it's used in the context of the protagonist mother, right? That she suffers yeah. from the, the mean reds. Yeah. So it all, it all comes full circle. That's right. Okay, so the story is set in Mountainville, Colorado, uh, but you yourself live in Austin, and both cities have film festivals and lots of similarities, really. And a film festival is key to the plot. So I was curious why you picked Mountainville over Austin or why you chose Colorado, or maybe in fact, the setting really is Austin and it's just in disguise. Oh, uh, the, the town is actually called Mountain View, although I really like the Mountain Oh, Valley. sorry about that. Yeah, No, I, I, really, I really like it. That's a, that's a great title. But yeah, uh, so it's set in, in Mountain View, and it is a thinly disguised version of Boulder, Colorado, actually. Okay. That is where I was living before I moved to Austin, and I was working as an arts and entertainment editor at a, a weekly alternative newspaper there. And I was having a lot of, you know, it's kind of my first and only full-time journalist job, which I kind of um, tumbled in backwards into that job. Uh, but it was a it was a fascinating job in, in a strange, uh, interesting town full of odd characters and, and uh, scenarios. And as the arts and entertainment editor, I got invited to all the things for free. You know, one of the, the biggest events in the town was the yearly Boulder International Film Festival. Um, and as a film buff, I'd always loved movies, but I didn't have a lot of experience at festivals myself, you know, so I'm going in it kind of in that anthropological mode of just like, who are these people and how does this all work? So that's where the general, uh, the setting of Mountain View started out as Boulder, but Boulder and Austin have a lot of things in common. I, Austin is much bigger, but they're both liberal uh, college towns that people really love and are moving to in droves and sort of driving up rent prices and driving out the locals who have lived out there for a long time. They're both uh, kind of communities that are proud of being quote unquote weird. Um, they're both communities where tech is coming in and sort of, you know, creating both jobs, but also chaos and things. So when I moved to Austin, the original story was conceived while I was living in Boulder, but I was writing it most in Austin and I was able to include a lot of Austin mm -hmm. stuff because there is such a, a crossover between that. And I think there's probably a crossover in a lot of sort of, 
you know, liberal cities that are going through some of these different types of growing pains. So hopefully there's some universality to that, uh, you know, other people in other cities can connect with as well. Yeah, definitely. And a couple of the Amazon reviewers mentioned that they had lived. Oh, yeah. They were like, oh, yeah, I, I know right. Mountain View because, yeah, I <laughs> live there. Yeah. So, yeah, people definitely recognized that it was Boulder, which which was cool. But it did remind me a lot of Austin. I'm glad it did. I really did want to bring out Austin and other places that I'd lived into it. And I wanted Mountain View to sort of be it's even though like it, you know, it very much came from uh, my Boulder experiences. I wanted it to be its own, you know, city and community that other people could connect to. It just gives rise to a lot of uh, really humorous scenes, you know, the frat boys grilling outside his apartment. Yeah, they're just all kinds of things. One of the things too, that I thought was interesting was that as you mentioned, being an anthropologist at the film festival, that really interesting scene that you describe where you've got, you know, because a lot of people go, filmmakers go to film festivals looking for funding for distribution opportunities. And you, I've never seen anybody talk about this before, but you talk about the split inside the social events between the money people, right, who are there and, you know, designer clothes and just have a certain culture and aura, right? And then the movie makers who are sort of on the other side of the room, like drinking beer, you know, and, and just the culture contrast between those two, which I, which I thought was really insightful, right? It was neat to have that behind the scenes kind of perspective. Yeah, those are the little things that I like, you know, as a storyteller, when I'm going into a situation, I'm kind of always on the lookout for stuff like that of like, what kind of scene is this? How are the people, you know, dividing themselves up in the room? What is the different, what are the different social and political cultures that are at work here? I think like people who are sometimes in the midst of that, who are creating festivals or attending them regularly, they often don't they're too close to it to sort mm -hmm. of see those things. But when you're coming in from the outside, those things become really obvious. Yeah, and it was a, it's a great, you know, Boulder International Film Festival, great festival. I recommend everybody going to it. They are able to get great people there, partly because Boulder is such an attractive community for people to come to, but mm -hmm. for such a small community, they get, you know, great people to show up both as filmmakers and as guests. And so and then this little community's coming in contact with these, you know, sort of big stars and, and performers and stuff. And it's this strange combination of influences and people that all kind of jam together. The characters in the novel are so fun. Of course, the protagonist is very interesting, as we've talked a little bit about him. But there's also the mayor, who we meet right away in the early mm -hmm. pages. Um, so he, that is Sam's, the protagonist, a very peculiar conspiracy theory landlord, a conspiracy theorist, I should say, landlord. And then there's V, who's this trash-talking, kind of aging Hollywood actress. She's my personal favorite of all the characters. Mine too, mine too by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that <laughs> probably came through, yeah. Right. And then uh, River Moore, who's that? She also a fascinating character. So she's the publisher's, the rich publisher's uh, spoiled daughter. And Sam's friend with, I guess I would call them dubious benefits. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I just picture you having so much fun moving these people around the stage of your novel. 
just developing them and having them interact with each other and do things. But can you talk about the writing techniques that you use to develop those characters? Um, sure. I, um, I mean, I don't know how many like official techniques there are. I, I didn't really study writing. Um, so I kind of like learned it by doing it, but with, um, character driven novels are my favorite. Mm -hmm. I like characters. I like getting inside their heads. I like when an author takes you in there and, you know, you find out about a person as the story goes on and they become more complicated and, you know, all these things. So character is my favorite part. And what I look for when I'm reading uh, something, no matter what genre it is, is well-developed characters. And as a writer, that's where I always start with as well. Uh, I start with uh, my main uh, characters and um, start making them complicated, bringing them to life before I even start writing, just sort of in my head. Um, and so these are interesting because, as I said before, there's a lot of um, a lot of stuff is based on my real experiences. But you always, with fiction, uh, start making things up as well, and the characters need to um, live and breathe on their own without you know your idea of what this real care you know real person is. And so uh, the mayor uh, was somebody I was living in a uh, old sorority house with the bathroom and kitchen across the hall, and the mayor. He was, he was named the Buffalo. I, d I don't know his real name. Everybody called him the Buffalo. He lived <laughs> in this place with us. He never left except um, once a month to go get groceries. Uh, but he was in there all the time, uh, trimming his beard in the bathroom, talking about, he was, he was more of a, he more of talk about ghosts. There's some conspiracy theories, but he was more of a ghost and paranormal guy. And he was always trying to talk to you about those types of things, but he was a character for sure. And so when I started writing this novel and I'm, I'm, you know, and obviously the protagonist was based on myself, especially when I'm starting to write, you know, and think about these things, I wanted him in the novel. He's just, you know, he's just the type of person like, you know, my goodness, this guy just <laughs> needs to be in fiction. Um, so I, I wrote him in and his interactions at the beginning were just, he was simply just this quirky guy that, you know, was constantly interrupting Sam and uh, just talking to him and trying to have, you know, these conversations. But then as the plot developed and as I started figuring out the, the plot of the novel more, then that's when I went back and I made him the landlord that Sam owes money to because that provides conflict and it gives the uh, their relationship, you know, you know, uh, uh, some complexity and, and sense of importance. Um, then I also made him the former mayor of Mountain View with a with a big old chip on his shoulder. And so that sort of brought in the conspiracy theories, which also, you know, made it like as Sam gets more into this fantastical plot in his stoned head that he has, he starts listening more and more of somebody like the mayor makes sense, you know, um, <laughs> which also is a little bit of a, a wink and a nod for me to things like, you know, Fox News and alternative media and, and some of these other things that we pay attention to when what they're saying jives with how we want to view the world, that type of thing. So um, that's where he came about. Yeah, that one was based on somebody real that had to become somebody fictional as I went along. That's the same with sort of Rivermore. This is, that's a sort of a combination of quite a few different people that I knew and, and a few uh, people that I dated um, <laughs> uh, uh, sort of 
back in the day that, that uh, gets sort of, you know, you, you compress a lot of things and, and until you get a, like a, you know, a fictional person that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with specifically the individuals that they started, that I started off with. Right. I um, mean, then V is a complete creation. The V is ah. based on nothing and no, and maybe that's why I enjoyed writing her. Although sometimes when you do characters like that, it's, it's hard to find a place to start and figure out. But with V, she just really came to life immediately. I loved making up all the old horror movies that she'd been <laughs> in. Those are all just like movies that I made up and, and I, I had fun doing it and um, because I love those things. Her dialogue, I loved writing her dialogue, the way she speaks and, you know, just sort of this, she's such a sassy, awesome lady. I mean, I did, a, I did, you know, just sort of poked around it, doing research of like what kind of thing would a child actor be doing, you know, and when V would have been a child, how, like, how would she might have gotten a start? So I poked around and watched some old commercials and, you know, some old shows and, and figured those things out. And, but that, that, like, yeah, that was a delight to develop V and it was quite easy on that one. Yeah. How fun. Okay. So one of my favorite scenes is when Sam goes to the film festival and he has that exchange with the guy who gives out the drink tickets. Oh, the whole thing is just fantastic. And I'm wondering if you would like to read that. Absolutely. I got it. I got it marked right here. It is um, always when I do readings, it's um, usually one that I go to and it always gets a, a, a great reaction. Okay. So just as a little bit of a setup, this is uh, Sam. It's the first night of the movie festival. He's running late. Uh, he's getting to, he's getting to there late and he's uh, yeah coming up to the ticket booth. The volunteer working the ticket booth was a skinny bearded young man perched high on a stool behind a glass partition, wearing a denim vest over a distressed Repo Man t-shirt with a name tag that said Frank and sucking on a lime green vape in a Freudian manner, periodically releasing a chemtrail of white fog that melted away almost immediately and left behind the odor of a flatulent skunk that had recently dined out on rotten strawberries. I showed him my press pass and he slid two drink tickets across the counter. I picked up the tickets and fluttered them in front of my face like a geisha fan. Any chance you got more of these back there? We're only supposed to give out two per person, he said. It's like a policy or something. I nodded and leaned in conspiratorially. Right, I get that, and I would never want to undermine a policy, but hear me out. It seems like everyone who's supposed to be in there is already in there, and you probably have a plethora of drink tickets left over, and it would be a shame if those drink tickets went to waste. He blinked rapidly. I'd like to help you out, but... They're pretty, you know, fascist about the drink tickets. Absolutely, but we can't let fascism rule the day. Am I right? Fight the power. Yeah, but the power gives me a free pass to the festival, and also, it wouldn't be fair to everyone else. Sure, it's important to be fair. I tapped my chin with my index finger, desperately searching my THC-riddled brain for the right words. So, okay, think of it like this. You have a litter of puppies, and the animal shelter where you work says you can only give away two puppies per person. You follow me? I don't work at an animal shelter. It's just a hypothetical, Frank. You seem like a philosophical thinker to me, a student of the mind, an admirer of Socrates and Plato, am I right? He chewed on his vape. More of an Aristotle guy, I guess. There you go, Aristotle. He liked thought experience, right? I guess. Of course he did. So think of this as an Aristotelian thought experiment. I don't think you're using that word correctly. I waved him off. So according to this arbitrary policy, you're only allowed to give away two puppies per person. And if there are any puppies left over at the end of the day, you are required to kill them. 
Whoa, my man, that is heavy. How? Uh, what do you mean? I said, how am I going to kill these hypothetical puppies? Uh, with an axe. An axe? Uh-huh. Like they just keep an axe hanging on the wall at the shelter? That's correct. At this particular shelter, any animal that doesn't find a forever home at the end of the day is cut in half with an axe that they hang on the wall. It's cruel, but that's the policy. I think that would be like a health code violation, my dude. They clean the axe thoroughly with disinfectants. There's a big laminated chart in the break room on how to clean the axe and dispose of the chopped up puppy parts. It's very sanitary. And I have to do this? Chop up the puppies? It's not your favorite part of the job, but that's the policy. But hold on, Frank, because we're not there yet. Because you're very good at your job. In fact, you're the best puppy giver away at this shelter, and you think you can find homes for all the puppies before the end of the day. You work hard. You give away a lot of puppies. But despite your best efforts, there are still six furry, spotted, newborn puppies left over at the end of the day. Oh, no. Very sad. You start to take the axe of the wall. But then, wait a second. What's that? You hear the door jingle. The door jingles, he said. Yeah, they have one of the bell things on a door, so every time it opens, it jingles. Just like one big bell, or is it one of those long strips with a lot of small bells attached to it? Which do you prefer, Frank? I like the strips. They kind of sound like sleigh bells. Okay, so the door opens just before closing, and the bell strip jingles, and a man walks in. A handsome and clever and smart man. And this handsome, clever, smart man says he'll take the rest of the puppies to his large sun-dappled farm where they can go on little puppy walks in the pasture and take little puppy naps under the willow tree. No puppies have to get in chopped in half today. Isn't that good news, Frank? He nodded and smiled. So here's the predicament. Do you follow this meaningless policy and only let the man have two puppies and chop the other four puppies in half with an axe according to the regulations described on the laminated chart in the break room? Or do you take a stand against your tyrannical overlights like the hero I know you are and save all the puppies? I straighten my posture and put my hand over my heart. Save the puppies, Frank. Save those goddamn puppies. He inhaled deeply and shook his head as though waking up from a coma. He stood up, raised his arms to chest level and began a slow clap. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard anyone say to get free booze, my dude. And both of my parents are alcoholics. <laughs> I took a bow. He reached under the counter and came up with six more tickets. Bring me back two puppies for me, okay? What's your breed, I asked. Whiskey. I knew I liked you. I grabbed the tickets and headed for the door. It's <laughs> just so great. <laughs> I'd forgotten the thing about that he preferred the bells on a strip. It's just, yeah, it's just so many great little uh, flourishes in there. Super fun. Yeah, in fact, so of course it's puppies, right? Of course you had to choose puppies for your story. Uh -huh. And animals actually play a big part in the book. They're always sort of around in the background. So River Moore has a dog and Sam has a cat, mm -hmm. appropriately named. Audrey Hepburn. Audrey yep. Hepburn. <laughs> it seems as though it must have been very fun to include the dogs and cats in the story. Yes. Yeah. I'm a big animal lover. We have a couple of cats. The Audrey Hepburn is um, basically after our cat, The Tempest. She's a, a little white sassy cat that uh, knows what she wants at all times. Um, and so, yeah, that's what that cat was modeled after. Yeah, and animals, I like writing about animals. It helps humanize characters. 
but it also helps develop character. Like you can tell what type of person or tell certain things about people by the animals that surrounding them or how they're treating them and different things. So, um, and also animals are great for, you know, sort of uh, symbolism a little bit, you know, uh, throwing those things into there as well. Uh, like when, uh, you know, the coyote shows up at the end of the novel, you know, animals are, are wonderful uh, things to write about and wonderful writing tools. Yeah, kind of unusual in this kind of book, but I think it works really well. Yeah, especially those early scenes with Audrey Hepburn being hungry and needing to be fed and how Sam deals with that. Yeah, it, it's it's unusual, but I think it worked really well. Thank you. Uh, Sam Drift is a movie buff in uh, case our listeners haven't figured that out yet. It's kind of an understatement, actually. He's sort of a movie freak, sort of obsessed with movies. His ability to summarize movies, I think, is really funny. There's this uh, section on page 13 where he talks about watching The Maltese Falcon, which is, you know, the current of that particular movie all through this book. And he doesn't have time to watch the whole movie. So he just goes to the scene that he likes the best. And so he describes it here as the one at the end where Bogey in a smashing pinstripe double-breasted suit presents the bad guys with the coveted falcon statue the movie is named after, which turns out to be a fake, causing a perm-headed, bow-tie-wearing Peter Lorre to shout obscenities at a fat, dapper Sydney Greenstreet before falling into a chair and crying like a baby. When the criminals leave, Bogey immediately turns them into the police before badgering a murder confession out of doe-eyed femme fatale Mary Astor, while simultaneously declaring his undying love for her. This all happens in the span of about four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. It's true. The whole it's movie, just... <laughs> they move so fast. They move. Yeah. And it's totally ridiculous, right? This yeah. Whole, yeah. <laughs> of course, that whole movie is just completely bizarre right like uh -huh. yeah somebody was yeah. on something yeah very mind so altering yeah <laughs> but yeah that i last left out loud because that whole thing that takes about four minutes is so perfect okay so i have to ask you what your relationship is with movies yourself i love this question yeah so i was raised my father was a small town fundamentalist preacher so I was raised in a very strict environment where we were we were not allowed to go to the mo local movie theater. We weren't allowed to listen to like secular music or go to dances or uh, any of those things. So it was a very, you know, sort of strict upbringing. We had a TV, but that we didn't have cable. It was just tucked up, you know, it had the antenna uh, that you kind of had to hold to get the to get the, yeah, well, we would have my sister hold it um, <laughs> to get it in the, in the right position. Uh, but it, there's five channels, you know, on there. And then after cartoons on Saturday morning, there were several channels that would play old movies on Saturdays. And my parents were okay if I watched old black and white movies because there was not going to be any nudity in them and no cursing. Um, oh. They didn't care about violence. Or, yeah, uh, no nudity and cursing. So I was allowed to watch old movies. So while my, all my peers were, you know, watching John Hughes movies and, and Saturday Night Live and on all these things. I was watching, you know, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so uh, when I went off to college, I did catch up on, you know, more modern movies. I watched all these movies that my peers have been talking about and things like that. But I always my first love was always still these old Hollywood movies. And I, you know, I retained that throughout the rest of my life as, you know, this uh, sort of nostalgia there. When I'm thinking of Sam and when I'm like when I'm in Boulder in that 
you know, little room that uh, I had also was smoking too much weed at the time myself and uh, li living in a little bit of a delusional fantasy world and, you know, watching a ton of old movies and stuff. I'm thinking of a character that just is even more into old movies than me and um, having a hard time separating fantasy from reality. And so when, um, as you said, with the first line of the, you know, he's he's going to get assigned to look into this case of a, a dead exotic dancer that has died outside a strip club locally. Then he's imagining himself as a Humphrey Bogart type figure. Can't accept the sort of what he thinks is the dull explanations of how all this happened, even though they're quite, you know, it's quite a big scandal in this little town, but it's going right over Sam's head because he's looking for gang affiliations and drug addictions and, you know, all these things that happen in his old noir movies. It's a little bit like the conspiracy theorist, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, there's a certain parallel to that. Yeah. Are you still going to film festivals now? You know, Austin's a great uh, place for film festivals, and I do attend them periodically. But man, large crowds of people are, I'm a pretty strong introvert, and it's it's tough for large crowds of people are tough for me. Um, I do love Austin Film Society, and so that's kind of more my jam and my culture there than uh, the festivals. The festivals get a little overwhelming for me, but I love the theater over at Austin Films AFS and, and the movies that they play and the, the, somebody always gives up and gives you know a brilliant little talk about the background of the film before it plays. Yeah, the, so that's definitely more more of what I uh, I love now. Fun, yeah, it's been such a golden era for us of a certain age to see yeah. the, the movie industry evolve and and now with streaming right and everybody spending half their life watching little screens i don't know the whole thing yeah. has just been kind of remarkable for sure so the mean reds is your first novel correct i was thinking when i was going back through the book again after i read it the first time you know this is really the kind of novel that i think a lot of first novel writers would like to write so it's rooted in a particular genre usually one that the writer likes. And then it's, I would say it's pretty fresh, you know, it's witty, it's got crazy characters. So can you tell us about your process for writing this novel? You mentioned that you hadn't taken a lot of writing classes, but have you read a lot about writing or did you just sit down and, and write it all in one day and piss us all off? <laughs> Oh my goodness, no. Uh, well, uh, for starters, thank you for, um, you know, when, you, when you're writing a novel, you're always hoping that a reader connects with the book, like you said. So thank you for that. I went to, I went to the University in Northern Colorado, which is sort of the poor man's Colorado college, and they didn't have a writing program. They had, I think, one poetry writing class and one prose writing class. Like I said, I came from a, a religious family and there weren't really like working artists anywhere in the family. So that's not something I always loved to read, but it didn't occur to me until I was pretty much all the way done with college that real people wrote those books that I was reading and that I could try to do that. So I just started trying to write. I just started writing on my own. And I, I think the best thing that I did in those early years was I made a really easy goal for myself, which was if I kept getting better each year, I would keep doing it. Okay. Didn't have anything to do with publishing or anything like that. It's just if I kept improving, um, because writing and books to me are so important. It was something worthy to pursue in my mind for a whole lifetime. You know, that's it's something to pursue to become a, a better writer for me was a worthy pursuit. And it took like, uh, it took 
a long time. It took, uh, I probably, uh, it was 10 years before I started really finding my voice and really starting to put together some decent short stories that didn't sound like Kurt Vonnegut or Ernest Hemingway or the other people I was trying to write like at different times in my life and stories that I liked in another five years working on getting published more. And at that point, I, did, I published a collection of short stories in a small press in Colorado. And then my ideas for the stories started getting bigger. Um, mm. They started getting bigger and they didn't really fit into a 10 page short story anymore. And so that's when I kind of decided it was time to start thinking about a, something longer in a novel. Um, but I, I mean, I'd gotten better at writing, but I didn't, you know, I certainly didn't know how to write a novel. I think I had like four, probably four attempts where I got uh, maybe th the furthest I got was maybe a hundred pages in before the novel sort of fell apart. Hmm. Then I did finish a sci-fi one, but it just, it didn't turn out as well as I wanted it to. And I just, uh, I didn't, you know, attempt to publish it, but it was, it was really good to finish it. That's, that's mm -hmm. one thing I would advise for people, for writers is just finishing stuff, even if it's bad, is an important thing to do. Um, it's always more fun to start something, but at some point uh, you need to finish it. And if it's, if it's worth editing, then you go back and you polish it up. If it's not, then you're like, I finished it and I learned from it and I'll move on to the next thing. So I learned from uh, those failed novel attempts. And the other thing that I learned was that I needed to sit with an idea for longer. I needed to just sit with it, talk about it with my wife. Uh, that's kind of been a big thing of like telling her my ideas until they become more fleshed out and, and bigger. Then I started, I always love a good first line and that's where that first line came from. And once I had that first line, I'm like, okay, I. I really do need to write this book too because I I, li I really like this line I, mm -hmm. I, and I want it you know I want it to come out and then it was yeah and then it was um, writing I wish that I was the type of writer that outlined more and you know you hear about these writers they put up you know big boards and with string and all and they they know the entire plot before they start the thing and that is not me at all I do not know what's going to happen I don't know where things are going to go. I have to start writing it and figure it out on the page, um, which involves a lot of setbacks because you figure something out and you, you're you halfway through the novel and you're like, oh, okay, and now I see that this needs to happen. I understand that this is part of the plot. And then you have to go back in the novel and be like, now we have to change things in order to get to that point in the plot. And then just rewriting a lot of things. We talked about a little bit how the mayor's character evolved. Another character that was uh, difficult at first was the uh, strip club owner. Mm. And this is another cool example of how, like I did, when I was working at the newspaper in Boulder, a strip club did open up on their central business area, was the Pearl Street Mall. And it did sort of open up in secret and people freaked out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. The mayor and all these like people are like, oh my God, you know, there's going to be, you know, sex and drugs in our, you know, in front of our kids and stuff was kind of a funny thing that happened and I wrote, you know, an article about it. But my coverage was just how like sort of about the overreaction of the uh the population to this, which ended up being sort of good for the strip club, right? And so mm -hmm. um yeah, the owner just said um you can come in without a cover charge whenever you want. <laughs> See, yeah, free entry for life. <laughs> right. And um I was like I, I wasn't a strip club guy. I hadn't really been to 
strip clubs before. <laughs> Probably and, not with your upbringing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also with the anthropology thing, I I would I mm. found it fascinating. I would sometimes go there because they stayed open and like every other bar in Boulder shut down at like midnight and they stayed open till like two or three. So I would often go there and I drink and I got to know the the owner and the bartenders uh, from coming in and doing that. And the, and the owner was this uh, very small, very mild mannered, bald man who everybody kept uh, thinking had ties to the mob or something, which I don't think was actually a thing. So I kept attempting to write him as the strip club owner mm -hmm. because that's who I knew as the strip club owner, right? But it just didn't work. I don't like it just time after time, I kept circling around and it just wouldn't take hmm. one of the things about writing that you want it like you want to go with your instincts of like when something feels right, then, you know, keep going. But if something feels wrong, you, like you pay attention to that, don't force it or whatever. But for whatever reason, I tried to do a bunch of different things. And then when I changed the owner from a man to a woman, mm. it suddenly opened up for whatever reason. And suddenly it was a completely different um, story, you know, character, but that character suddenly, you know, came alive for me. So yeah, those type of uh, different things I would definitely advise people who want to be writers to, you know, go learn what you can from it. But if you can't get into the classes or you don't want to, like, you, you don't have the money to do those things, like, there's nothing preventing you from, I think the biggest thing you need is just stubbornness. Mm. What got me through a thing is just like the people who keep at it, even when it doesn't seem like you're making progress or nobody's publishing you or different things. I think are the writers that eventually are, you know, going to find a place for their work and they're going to get better and they're, and it's, it's a good feeling um, for a creative person to like feel that they are getting better and improving. It's kind of the only thing that like, you know, really you become proud of and, and that you want to do. Yeah. So when you say that you set yourself well, you said it was a modest goal, but I think it's actually probably maybe the goal of getting better every year. What did you use as a gauge? Was it your own taste, right? Your own sensibilities or were, did you use other measuring tools? No, I guess that's a bit of a cheat there. Uh, well, or, or not, right? I mean, maybe yeah. that's the hardest tool to, right? Yeah, um, it it was um, it was just my own by my own calculations. Mm -hmm. If I and actually I'm pretty hard on myself, especially when writing comes to that. So, yeah, um, and I also had the advantage of I was very very bad at it at first. So, <laughs> so get, getting better was a pretty easy to do. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. And how long do you think it took you to write the novel? I think it was probably about a two year deal for me. Um, I certainly thought about it quite a while before that, but I do that with a lot of like all the things that I, I write and comes up. So um, the actual writing and editing and, and re-editing and, and re-editing and re-editing um, was about a two-year process before I was comfortable enough. And and this one, I did also hire a professional editor who was, uh, you know, a good novelist in, in and of itself. And then their feedback helped put the finishing touches and, th and that after that was when I was felt comfortable, like, you know, starting to publish the process of, uh, you know, sending out queries to see where I could get it published. Yeah. So I should mention that it's published by Stephen F. Austin State University Press. And so how did you find them? 
Um, they were recommended to me by another, um, I'd done a reading at the old Malvern books, may it rest in peace, mm -hmm. uh, of my short story collection, uh, many years ago. And I met another writer who'd been at it for a while. He was just a really nice guy. And we, we talked and we ended up being Facebook friends. And uh, when this one came out, uh, you know, you, when you're finished with your novel, you go through a long process of rejection. And so you start at the top, you start with, you know, your dream agent, and then uh, that's almost certainly uh, is going to be a rejection and, go, you know, go sort of down the process until you go through the agents. And then you go through publishers who will publish without an agent. And so I was looking a lot in Colorado and Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a Texas author and the novel is set in Colorado. So that connection I, I thought would uh, bring me the best chances of getting published. Um, university presses are great and I've always loved them and respected them. And the, uh, that novelist that I made friends with, I messaged him about, you know, suggestions and this kid suggested, um, yeah, that I uh, query them. And, and fortunately they picked it up and had a, a great a wonderful, hardworking, and overworked team over there who helps uh, finish the editing and, and walk through the process of getting the novel out. Yeah, it's really a nice tip because I think for a novel like this, a lot of people wouldn't have thought of a university press. So, you know, something for people to keep in mind that publishers that you might think would not be interested might in fact pick up a novel like this. It really hard to say. I think the there was a grad student who was working on it, and she was a fan of mysteries. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, helped me out in this particular um, way. Uh, call, although this is kind of a non-traditional uh, mystery novel, it still fits into that genre. Like I don't know if if she hadn't been there, whether or not they you know would have been as interested. So you you yeah you just you should always try because you never know who might be there or what the circumstances might be, and it. It doesn't hurt to try. The rejections hurt, but sure. uh, but it is what it is. You know, you got to get used to that. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by your idea of using your own taste as your measuring tool. I, I remember coming across something that Ira Glass talked about, about trying to get better at something. And I can't quote him exactly, but he talks about when you start out, you have this killer taste, right? As so many of us do, right? People who are good readers or good listeners who consume a lot, right? Probably tons of my listeners who are really good at judging like television series, right? Because we consume a lot and we we know what's good. So Ira Glass was saying, you start out, you've got this killer taste and you look at your own work and you can see how badly it falls short. But his advice similar to yours was keep working because you will get better and your own sensibilities will tell you when you when you're getting better and if you're making progress. But he said, you know, it just takes years and years of work for the kind of work that he does, which is essentially storytelling and an audio format. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. I think the work is the main thing when people it's just hours every week. I don't do it every day, but when I'm working, I do it every week. And sometimes, you know, that time is spent just staring at a computer and nothing happening. But you still sit down and you stare at the computer and you still put in the work. It's a, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of failure and it's a lot of getting better. Um, and you do have to try to turn, you, you're talking, like you were talking about, yeah, I think we have 
we all a lot of smart people and we read a lot of books and we we watch movies and we become you know good critics of those things but there needs to be another part where you sort of get you turn that off for yourself or you try to because you need to give yourself freedom you need to give yourself a break you need to give yourself like the ability to uh play with something and do something badly and improve on it and i yeah i don't think that is enough of a focus when people are talking about writing and and what to do is that it's probably going to suck for Mm -hmm. a long time it's not going to be very good and that's okay as long as you're like learning from it and getting better i think that's really great great advice Okay, so one more thing to talk about in the book. Uh, Sam discovered, I'm going to try not to do any spoilers here because I I really do want my listeners to read this book uh, without knowing what's coming. So he discovers that he is profoundly mistaken about something, a story that he's been telling himself uh, for years. And it's a stunner for him in the book. And it's a wake-up call to us as readers that Sam really is uh, somewhat blinded or delusional about certain things uh, because this misunderstanding is very serious. So without giving too much away, I was curious, did you struggle to come up with that twist or did you have that in mind all along? I didn't struggle to come up with it, but I also did not have it in mind. I think you're very correct. Sam is a very unreliable narrator, but he's also just unreliable narrator of his own story like he's so caught up in a fantasy world that he can't even tell the truth about his own uh life and um my favorite novels i always feel are ones where it does feel like the author themselves are exploring their own psychology their own foibles their own issues and this is definitely comes from that in my novel where like i have always had a tendency to live more in a fantasy world that comes from partly from like i said growing up in a small religious town where i wasn't you know allowed to express myself very much and so i retreated into the worlds of books and movies and just my own imagination but then yeah sort of in that period of my life, like sort of living alone, smoking a lot of weed, and you can lose sight of the real world and and sort of your place in it. And so there were some things sort of about my own personal past that I'd either repressed or conveniently like just misremembered or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's where that came from. Sam is a definitely a heightened or over the top version of that. You know, that's certainly not Sam isn't me, but he's I'm exploring if I let that side of me go, Mm -hmm. where would it take me? Hopefully other people who sort of recognize, that's always my favorite is when I read uh, writers like that. And I recognize something about that in myself. It's interesting, an examination of your own psychological makeup. So the twist wasn't planned. It just sort of evolved as in how far does Sam's delusion go? And we we have to know that as the reader, we have to find that out. Mm-hmm. I swear that, as you said, uh, without giving away the, the plot twist or, or the things that happened, that's where that came from. Is like, this is exactly how unreliable um, this narrator that we're on board is. And what does that mean for this story? Yeah. What do we learn? From, I mean, I, I really like that as readers, like what, what do we learn from that ourselves? Right. That, yeah. This idea of a wake up call. It's like, wait a minute. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it makes you question your own the stories we tell ourselves. 
Yeah, the and without like I definitely didn't intend and it, without being too like preachy with it too. The novel does uh, attempt to sort of examine what has happened with media and sort of traditional media compared to the evolution of alternative media and social uh, social networking and how that has all affected that. Because Sam is also not a very good journalist and. Um, on this journey, he's, you know, th so that is also sort of a critique of those things of like why real journalism, good journalism matters because his, his editor is a good journalist. Um, so you can see the difference between and, and, and why that matters when it, it comes down to these stories that we tell as well and who we listen to when we're trying to find out information about the world around us. Yeah, that's true big theme in the book is the newspaper that he works for and what the editor looks for and what the publisher looks yeah. for. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. So anyway, I do recommend the book. So the book is called The Mean Reds uh, by Dale Bridges. And before I let you go, Dale, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience about where they could find the book or learn more about you or anything else? Uh, so I have a writing website that is uh, dalebridges.org that uh, you can go to and you can find um, links. It is, of course, available at like places like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Walmart. But if you uh, would prefer to buy it directly from the publisher, you can also um, purchase it that way through the, the website as well. And then I also have another website that has my art and that is dalebridgesart.com. Um, during the pandemic, uh, I was really struggling with writing, uh, because, hmm. uh, writing is a very, just for me, it's a very front of the brain sort of conscious effort. And I, I think it was too much anxiety. I think I was getting on my wife's ner nerves a little bit. And, uh, she, she's, she's an artist. She's a really good artist. So we had a lot of art supplies and she was just like, sort of, why don't you try painting something trying to, I think just distract me. And I really took to it. So I've uh, been painting a lot the last couple of years and really enjoying the process of that. Um, it's very relaxing for me and a lot of fun and exploring other parts of my weird brain uh, with that process as well. So those are the two places that you could go. I would you know, love to, if you do uh, get the book, you know, please leave reviews. That's still the best way for small press and, and independent authors to get the word out. Um, and please recommend it to other people, you know, do the, uh, on Instagram and Facebook or just, you know, uh, people in your family definitely would love to hear back from anybody who's enjoying it and love the fact that the, this book seems to con constantly be finding new audiences. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Super fun. Really fun book. And thanks for coming on the show. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I really appreciate this. This was so fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. <laughs>